Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio from lead pastor Brad Evangelista. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. My name is Brad. I'm one of the pastors here. It's a joy to see you. If you have a Bible, open it to the New Testament letter of James. You can find James towards the back of the New Testament. If you need to look at the table of contents to find it, that's fine. This is a table of contents free zone. Believe me, the person who knows where it is next to you that may be better at finding the books of the Bible than you are is worse than you at something else. I guarantee it. We're beginning a new series through this beautiful New Testament letter called James, one of the most beloved letters in the New Testament. It's five chapters, it's short, it's punchy, it's clear, it's direct, and it's full of practical application for the Christian life. Why are we starting a series through James, which likely certainly will take us through the end of the year and into the next For several reasons. I think, first of all, it serves as a a very helpful counterpart or counterbalance to our long study that we just concluded a few months ago before we went through Malachi, the long series that we concluded through the letter to the church at Rome by Paul, Romans. In Romans, we spent years, really, marinating slowly and deeply on the gospel of God's free grace. The message of Romans is that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, and no matter of good works can save a person. We're not saved by works. As the beautiful hymn says, nothing in my hands I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. But James seems to say, at least on the surface, something contradictory or different than what Paul says in Romans. If you have your Bible open to Romans, just just look at verse, uh, I'm sorry, to James, look at chapter 2, verse 14. James says, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? And then down to verse 17 of chapter 2. So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. So what is it? Is it like, Paul says in Romans that we're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, apart from our works, but our faith in Christ is what saves us? Or is there a contradiction here? Is what James is saying here true, that that faith, that works seem to have something to do with our salvation? What are we to make of this? Is there a contradiction? Well, the answer is no. Romans and James are looking at two different aspects of the Christian life. Romans that we went through for some time, is mostly concerned with how salvation is received by faith alone and Christ alone. While James is mostly concerned with how salvation is verified, how it's authenticated, and that is by the deeds, by the works of obedience that flow from true saving faith. So the Protestant reformers, when they were struggling with this, and by the way, they did struggle with this. Martin Luther famously called James the epistle of straw, meaning that it wasn't something you could build on. He said it was a, a, a right, strawy epistle. He's criticizing James, really, because he found the gospel of free grace in Romans. And remember, he was caught up in this Catholic system in the medieval ages of, of earning your salvation through some system of merit, and that was driving Luther insane, and he discovered the gospel afresh in Romans that we're not saved by our works, but we're saved by Christ's work, and it's by faith alone in Christ, and even this faith is a gift that God must give you before you can even exercise it in Jesus. And then Luther read James, and he, he was conflicted, and he, he wondered if there was a contradiction. And so this beautiful statement came out of the Protestant Reformation that said that yes, we are saved by faith alone, not by our works, we're saved by faith alone, but the type of faith that saves, true saving faith, is never alone, meaning that it is accompanied, 
It gives birth to, from out of it flows, obedience to God. And that's what James is concerned about. James is an an incredibly important book in the New Testament canon. It's a kind of snapshot of the Christian life. More specifically, it drills down on what the tested, the authenticated, the verified, the, the true Christian life looks like. Certainly in its short five, cha- four, five short chapters, it's not a comprehensive look at all of what the Christian life entails, but it's a kind of highlight. In, in many ways, it, it correlates what Jesus taught in the Sermon on the Mount, that this is what the life that looks like that's lived under the Lordship of Christ. Maybe the epicenter, maybe the center of the heart of James is found in chapter 4, verse 14, where James says that friendship, friendship with the world is enmity with God. In other words, to, to, to be friends in the sense that we are giving ourselves over to the lordship of this fallen world is to be at odds, to be enemies with God. In a sense, James is not really a doctrinal or theological letter like many of the other New Testament letters are. But rather, it's a very practical letter. But that doesn't mean that it doesn't stand on the foundation of the good doctrine of the rest of the New Testament. James is assuming much of that knowledge. In fact, it's, it's, it's been well noted that there's not much mention of Christ in this letter, except in the opening and in a few other places. James's concern is the living out of the faith that the good doctrine of letters like Romans give us. This, this Christian life, this now, this is what this theology should look like in practice. That's the concern of James. James was qualified to, to write this letter. He was the half-brother of Jesus. He was the younger brother, meaning half-brother, meaning obviously Joseph biologically is not the father of Jesus. Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit but James is the son of Joseph and Mary. So he's the, the brother, the, the younger half-brother of Jesus. And we read in the book of Acts that he was the leader of the church in Jerusalem, really the, the leader of the first Christian church. He comes and he presides over the, the important council in Acts chapter 15. So James is well qualified to write this letter. It may be one of the first letters written that we now have in our New Testament. So let's begin our, our journey through James by considering the first, the first four verses. Here's my plan. I'm going to read these four verses, then we're going to peel them back, and we're going to summarize them, and then we'll be done. James 1, verses 1 through 4. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion, greetings. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Let's pray and ask the Lord to help us. Lord, thank you for this beautiful letter, for these beautiful opening verses. Lord, your word is inspired by you. It's breathed out by you. It's perfect. It's without error. It's infallible. It's pure. It's reviving the soul. It stands forever. This world and all of its kingdoms and principalities and powers will fade away. But the word of God will stand forever. Change us as we look at this book over the coming weeks. Make us more like Jesus. Get us more ready for eternity. This world is fading away. Equip us for heaven. And for my friends that are here and that will join us over this study, Lord, point them away from themselves. Bring them to a place of despairing of their own righteousness so that they will finally see that their only hope is to trust in Christ. Lord, I pray that you do all this for your glory and our good. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, let's, let's unpack these first four verses. And by the way, James would be a wonderful book for, for you to take passages that really strike you to memorize, maybe even the whole book. There are some of you that when you knew that we were going to start the letter of James have told me that at various points in your life you have memorized 
the whole book of James. That would be wonderful. In fact, maybe at the end of James, we'll have a memorization party. Look at verse 1. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Take note of how James introduces himself here. He doesn't use, take note that he doesn't use the two things that would qualify him most. He doesn't mention that he is the brother, the biological half-brother of Jesus. He doesn't mention that he's the only leader of the church in Jerusalem. There is tremendous humility in the way that James sees himself. We see what's translated there from the Greek word. We see servant in English, but it can be translated even more literally as a slave. That's how James saw himself. And and at times in the New Testament, we read of Paul and Peter describing themselves in that way as well. Jesus, James saw himself not as Jesus' brother, but he saw Jesus as his master most primarily. And he is, he's coming now, he's introducing himself as he's writing this letter as, as nobody, nobody that the world would give accolades to, but as the slave of God the Father and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, just one little note here before we move on to the rest of this verse. Just take note. I want you to see, I want you to ha- develop an instinct for this as you read your Bible. How often the doctrine of the Trinity is subtly embedded all throughout the New Testament. And this is one of those places. He says here, I'm the servant of God, the Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ, meaning God the Son. Now, he's saying that he's a servant of these two persons, the Father and the Son. But we know, and he certainly would have been familiar with Jesus' teaching in the Sermon on the Mount, where it says that we cannot serve two masters. James knew that. In fact, much of James is kind of based on the Sermon on the Mount. But here he says that he's the servant of the Father and the Son, but... That's not a contradiction with what James knows to be Jesus' teaching, that we can't be the servant of two masters. We can't be the slave of two masters. So instinctively, just embedded here, without explanation, James is kind of giving an apologetic for a sort of of doctrinal underpinning for the, the Trinity itself. He instinctively sees the Father and the Son as one. Now, this is a small thread, admittedly, and there are many other places in the New Testament that the doctrine of the Trinity is much more clearly enunciated. But I want us to develop an instinct that if you look closely, you'll see threads pointing throughout all of the New Testament to the glorious, beautiful, mysterious, essential doctrine of our triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, three in one. So he calls himself a servant. And then he says, who's he writing to? The 12 tribes in the dispersion. Greetings. Who are the 12 tribes of the dispersion? Who and what is James referring to here? Well, I think this 12 tribes is a clear reference to the Jews, Christian Jews, Jews that have now become Christians. And he's, it's really hearkening back to Old Testament language. In the Old Testament, God, through his, his leaders, Moses and others, organized Israel into 12 tribes. And eventually those 12 tribes kind of became split and they became what we know of as the the kingdoms of Israel and the kingdoms of Judah. And then we see in kings and other places where God's kingdom is split. And then they're taken off into captivity. And when they're taken off into captivity, they're really scattered all throughout the known world at the time. And now here we see in the New Testament, we also see remnants of this scattering because on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, after Jesus has died and ascended, tells his disciples to wait for him for the Holy Spirit to, to fall on the church, we see that all of these Jews who are speaking other languages, ethnic Jews who are growing up in foreign lands, are coming back to Jerusalem for the day of Pentecost. And at this feast, this, this important feast in the Old Testament, that's when the Holy Spirit falls. But what's, what's important to note is all these, these Jews are coming from all over the world. So God's people, the Jews, were dispersed because of their disobedience and because of their rebellion. But in God's providence, he's going to use the dispersion of his people to be part of the means by which he fuels the advance of the gospel and missions. So because they're dispersed for all these centuries and because they've learned these other languages and because they come back to Jerusalem and they hear the gospel preached by preached by Peter in Acts chapter 2, they come to faith and then they take it back out. And so even, even this, is the, this is the point you're thinking, whoa, Brad, easy, 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 you're killing me. I just thought we were doing something simple here in James 1. Now, you, now you're getting kind of like biblical on me. Just listen to me for a second. 
do you see how God takes the scattering of his people through their disobedience and rebellion and captivity to be used for the good of the advance of the gospel in the time of the apostles in the New Testament? The point being that God brings good from bad all the time. In fact, I think that's the major theme of our text this morning. And in a sense, it's not just these ethnic Jews that are dispersed that James is writing to who have become Christians. In a sense, this describes us too, true Israel, spiritual Israel, the church. We are a scattered people. Friends, this world is not our home. We are a dispersed people. We're dispersed. I, I, I think about this all the time when I get to go home. Last week, I went home to visit my folks for a little while in California. And I'm reminded that when I, when I am with my parents, when I'm with, you know, like the air just feels different wherever you're from. Does anybody know what you're talking about? It just kind of feels different. And when I get off the plane in San Diego, the air just feels different. Now, literally, it's like there's not 114,000% humidity, so it actually does really literally feel different. But it's just, it, in a temporary sense, it's kind of home, right? We all understand that. But for the Christian, this world is not our home. That's... that's a major theme in the New Testament. Wherever you're from, whether you're from Columbus or Phoenix City or somewhere else, lots of military people here, and you thank you for the way you serve. You guys go all over the place, all over the world, all over the country every two or three years, and you understand this kind of dispersing. And, and maybe your moving around is actually creating in you a kind of spiritual maturity to realize that, that, that some town in middle America or in the southeast or in southern California is not ultimately our home. We are a, a dispersed. We're pilgrims here on this earth. Listen to what Paul says in Philippians 3. He says, our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. We are primarily and first and foremost citizens of heaven. Verse 2 through 4 now. This is the meat of what James is saying to us, and I think it serves as a kind of setup for the rest of his letter. He says, these are some well-known passages, but let's, let's stare at them for a while. He says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. That word count, consider, this is a verb that is concerned with what we think, not with how we feel. James is not telling us how we should feel about what we are experiencing. He's telling us how we should think. Other ways this word is translated in the New Testament is to, to consider, to, to actually lead and rule. In other words, to have dominion over your circumstance. And I love this word. It's a kind of old English word, reckon. To reckon it, to consider it, to count it all joy. Let this be your controlling thought or consideration. And this leads us to an important spiritual truth, even in that first word of verse 2. And this truth is this, that a major component of spiritual maturity is that we are not to be guided by our feelings over our thoughts. And then we must fill our minds with God's thoughts so that when life presses on us, what we listen to is God's thoughts, God's ways, God's truth more than our feelings. Much of the Christian life is a battle between the subjective feelings and the objective truth of God's word. And the mature Christian that James is pointing us to here is able to consider, reckon, to think it all joy. He says to count it all joy. Now this word joy is interesting. It, what does he mean by this? To consider, to reckon, to train your mind that when you meet difficulties, when you meet trials, that you, you can consider it joy. One, one commentator says this. He says that, I love this little sentence. He says, joy proves quite different from happiness. So that this verse does not support the idea that a Christian must smile all the time. And I'm thankful for that. 
In fact, quite frankly, uh, that's really encouraging. It's not saying that you have to check reality at the door and put on your happy face when you walk into the church. In fact, that's impossible. Come on. Many of you have small children, and you almost killed somebody on the ride to church this morning. And you do damage to your soul sort of incrementally when you feel this pressure or when a group of people put this pressure on you to act like you have it all together. It does not accord with reality. Amen? But they go on to say that joy, I love this, this thought. Joy is defined as a settled contentment in every situation or an unnatural reaction. I like that because it is unnatural. We need it outside of us. It's not something, that, it's something, it's something God must give it. An unnatural reaction of deep, steady, and unadulterated thankful trust in God. It's a kind of resolve. It's a kind of weightiness. It's a kind of gravitas that God works in a person that we are to think along those lines that when we're facing trials, and we'll, say, we'll see why we can have that joy in, in a moment because it's going to do something in us for our good and God's glory, that we can have this settled contentment. I love that phrase. Settled contentment. Jeremiah Burroughs, a Puritan, Puritan preacher who lived in the 1600s in England, said this in his classic little book called The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment. And I love the title because contentment is often a rare jewel. Amen? And this is what Burroughs says about this idea of settled contentment or this type of joy that James is pointing us to. He says, Christian contentment is that sweet, inward gracious frame of spirit which freely submits to and delights in God's wise and fatherly disposition in every condition. Now, I love the fact that Jeremiah Burroughs calls all of this a kind of rare jewel. So this isn't something you just sort of come by. This is something you have to work at. And, And the spiritual life, friends, the spiritual life must be worked at. Don't misunderstand the glorious grace of the gospel that we read about in Romans to then translate into that this grace then that we receive freely is then lived out without any effort. That's not the way the Christian life works, and that's what James is pointing us to. Grace is received freely, but it's lived out by striving. That's why Paul says in Philippians 2, work out your salvation. Work out this grace that you receive freely. Work out this supernatural electing grace of God. Work it out with fear and trembling. And this type of contentment that Jeremiah Burroughs is pointing us to takes much work. And then he says, James, back to James, he says, count it all joy when you meet, not if you come across trials, but when they're coming, it's certain. This is true of every Christian life. Peter says something very similar in 1 Peter chapter 4, which in many ways parallels exactly what James is saying here in James 1. He says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. So it's not if it's coming, it's when it's coming. And when it's coming, you can consider it. You can reckon it. You can, you can consider it with a settled contentment, joy. And then he goes on to say trials of various kinds. He's, he's quite actually, is, there's, there's, an, there's a vagueness to this. There's, an, there's a broadness to this net that James is casting. He's not being specific. And what's interesting about this word is it, is it, is it can encompass trials that are both internal and external. It's, it's, all, it's all of the trials that the Christian is facing. The Holy Spirit is inspiring James to write this so that none of us can read ourselves out of this text. Because we tend to do that. We tend to read ourselves out of the text and think that our situation is unique and isolated. And it's not. You are not Listen to me, dear friend. You are not the exception. Your situation is not the exception. That's a wonderful principle to live by biblically. 
because we like to read ourselves out of the authority of God's word. Ah, well, my situation, you know, it doesn't really, none of us, no situation that we are facing is the exception. Paul says in 1 Timothy, or 1 Corinthians, I'm sorry, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13, no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Nothing that you're facing has not been faced by God's people in the past, right now, and in the future. And James is arming us with an attitude to how we can encounter that. Why? Why can we count it a joy? That's what we get to in verse 3. Why? For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. There's not a kind of mindless joy that we need to have, but it's joy based on the reality of what these trials that are sovereignly ordained by God are bringing about according to his wise counsel in our life. You know that the testing, the proving, the authenticating of your faith produces something in you, a steadfastness and endurance. So who's doing the testing here? Well, in one sense... The, the world, the flesh, and the devil are doing the testing. The, the devil wants to come and trip up God's people all the time. First Peter chapter 5, verses 8 through 10 says that our enemy, the, the, the devil, prowls about like a lion, seeking whom he may devour. All the time in the Old Testament, we see Satan coming to test and to try God's people. But his testing and his trying is always meant for our destruction. And God will even use Satan's temporary schemes against him to bring about the greater good of our proving. We even see this in Job, where, where, where God brings up Job's name to Satan as a candidate for testing. That's, that's big. Have you considered my servant Job? And then Satan thinking, oh yeah, let me, let me get on that. I'm going to do this. God actually uses the wicked designs of our enemy. He's sovereign over it. And he uses them against the enemy for our good. That's strength. That's strength. I've told you the analogy before that I have an older brother. And he led me to the Lord, so he's a wonderful brother, which you might not think after I tell you the story. But we played this little game where he would wrap himself in a blanket, and I would put on boxing gloves, and I could just hit him however, as hard as I wanted, just, just neck below, neck to the waist, just as hard as I could. And I just try to get around him and get those kidney shots in, and I could just pound him as, as much as I wanted. But he was built like a fire hydrant. And my blows against him were strangely ineffective. And he would let me do that for a while. And then he would say, is that the best you got? Is that the best you got? And I'd get tired and I'd say, yeah. And then he would throw off the blanket. He would throw me to the ground and he would grab my hands and he would start to use my hands to punch me in the face. Like <laughs> <laughs> and in a sense, God, God uses... God uses ultimately, this is what this text is telling us, that behind any test, internal, external, we don't need to spend any time thinking about where it comes from. For you know that the testing of your faith, God has a good design behind it. He uses even the enemy against you who's trying to destroy you. He uses it against him and his purposes to bring about his good purposes, which is to produce in us a steadfastness. A weightiness, a, an endurance. This is exactly what Paul says in, in Romans 5, verses 3 and 5. Listen to this. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and that hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. And we, le we read later in Romans that that hope in us is a hope that's longing for heaven. So all that's happening in us is producing us more heavenliness, more, more wanting more of the future, more of eternity. Reminds me of that Spurgeon quote where he says that, the, 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 that Jesus often rides to the doorsteps of our hearts on the black horse of affliction to wean us from this world and woo us to himself. 
And all that time, Satan thinks that he's the one that's steering that horse of affliction, but it's Jesus who is riding it with the reins in his hand according to his sovereign purposes. That's what this text is telling us. And the steadfastness, it's not a resignation, this testing of your faith, in other words, validating, the authenticating, the proving, it's, one, it's God shouting over his children, that's my boy, to an onlooking world. That's my girl. It's God putting us through things so that he can display his glory in and through our lives. And it produces in us a steadfastness, a weightiness. This word denotes a kind of militant patience, one commentator says. An engaged waiting, an endurance that is faith stretched out as it waits for God. So we know that this testing produces something in us, that steadfastness, but that steadfastness isn't the ultimate goal. We read what the ultimate goal is here in verse 4, and we finish with this. And let steadfastness, that is the, that is the, the result, the fruit, the, the produce of our testing, let this steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. In other words, let it come to fruition in your life. Don't, don't rush through it. The full effect of steadfastness. Is he saying that we can be perfect? Because he says here that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. Is, is, is James advocating a kind of sinless perfectionism that some in the history of the church have advocated? No, I don't think so. I think clearly, when we balance this verse with the rest of the New Testament and what it says about our sanctification, that he's talking about a kind of, <laughs> a kind of well-rounded rootedness. A person whose confidence and hope is in God, a person whose roots of experience with God through the difficulties of life go deep. That's what James is concerned with. He doesn't want us to just be merely doctrinal Christians. He wants this doctrine that we read about in the rest of the Old Testament, this doctrine that we glory in in Romans, he wants it to actually produce something in our lives, a kind of grounded rootedness that this world cannot touch. I think that's what the description of the Christian life and community is, what Paul is concerned with in Ephesians chapter 4. Listen to Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 through 16. This is a beautiful, hallmark, important text in the New Testament. It says about the life of a Christian in the local church. It says about what we're trying to do here as we live out this verse. It says, and he, meaning God, or Jesus more specifically, gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry. So God gives gifts to the church. He gives leaders so that they equip Christians, saints, that's all of us, for the work of ministry so that we would collect, so all, we aren't just consuming it, but we're doing it for the building up of the body of Christ until we all, verse 13, attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, which is, is very much like James's language in verse 4 there, that we're, we're complete, we're, we're perfect, we're lacking nothing, we're full in Christ. Why? In verse 14, back to Ephesians 4, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. This world is confusing. There will be winds, false winds that will blow, and they will have hurricane category five level of intensity at times, and their intent is, is to uproot and blow down and blow away the children of God. But what Paul is saying here in Ephesians, which accords with what verse four says in James one, is that God desires through testing to root us, and as we link arms together in the body of Christ, so that we would be able to withstand the hurricane forcing winds of life. Rather than, verse 15, we speak, we're speaking the truth in love together. Notice the communal aspect. This is not an individual sport that James is calling us to. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, 
joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. And this, this is a beautiful text. This is, this is a text of what the local sh- church should look like. This is how we live out. Ephesians 4, 11 through 16 tells us how we live together, how important it is to be part of a local church, how important and the only way that we can live out the admonition of verse 4 of our text in James 1. The Christian life, we live together, we root ourselves in Christ by loving each other, speaking truth to one another, being accountable to one another, by being real with one another, by confessing sin to one another, by knowing our names. I think, I think implicit in this is by actually being connected in some formal way to other Christians through church membership. By, in fact, we have a church membership class coming up tomorrow night and next Monday night. Come to that if you're not a member of this church and learn. Robert told us about it in the announcement. Learn what it means to be a Christian in community that is living out the clear implications of these verse, verses to be steadfast, to grapple, to link arms with other Christians and live together in this rugged way. And this, friends, I'm telling you, is hard to do. It's hard to do. It's it's hard to do. So he says, let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. But it's worth it to live like this. It's worth it to live like this. Because it brings about a maturity that ultimately makes us more like Jesus. So three sentences quickly to summarize James 1. Verses 1 through 4. 1, God validates and proves his children through trials. That's the way God works. It's part of God's plan. Now, listen, some of you that are maybe more philosophical and just like to ask questions, I think that's a wonderful way to approach the Bible. I think it's, it's helpful to be inquisitive. You may be wondering right now, you may be asking, why did God have to do it this way? Why does he need testing? Why does he need a fallen creation? Why, does he, why, does he, why did he engineer it in this way? Why did he do it? Friends, I think that's a great question. I don't think ultimately we get the answer to that this side of eternity. His ways are inscrutable. In all of your wondering, in all of your questioning, part of Christian maturity is to question things, to wrestle with the text, to think deeply about the ways of God, but to realize that there is an end of the road of human wisdom. And your ways are scrutable. His ways are inscrutable. He can't be figured out. He can't be quantified. He can't be boxed up. I don't know why things are the way they are, but I know that they are the way they are. He's the potter, we're the clay. And we have a choice to fight against that or to realize that God has some good design and purpose in all things, specifically every trial that I meet of various kinds because he's wanting to produce steadfastness in me which is going to have an effect in me that will root me and ground me and make me complete, lacking nothing so that I grow up into Christ with all my brothers and sisters so that we all make it home together. That's the way God works. God validates and proves his children through trials. The purpose of these trials, secondly, is to make us more like Jesus. I just said that. I'm getting ahead of myself. The purpose of these trials is to make us more like Jesus. Don't believe that because I conclude that. Let's let's see it in the scriptures. This is what Paul says about your salvation, about your election by grace, about your salvation through faith, and about your ultimate glorification, your future. He says in Romans 28 and 29, and we know that for those who love God, that's meaning Christians, God worked that love in you. Right now you're thinking, I don't know if I love God. Well, the good news is, is you don't need to bring love for God to the table. God works it in you. He takes your dead heart and he gives it love. He makes it alive. And the fruit of God's regenerating work in your heart is love for him. So don't think you need to bring this. The first step in knowing that you can't, the the first step in salvation is knowing that you can't save yourself. So we know that for those who love God, 
All things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he is also predestined, listen to this, to be conformed to the image of his son in order that we might be the firstborn among many brothers. So all of this is happening in your life. Jesus has done all this for you. God has done all this in your life so that, here's the end state, that you would be conformed to the image of his son. That's the end. The purpose of these trials is to make you more like Jesus. So what 2 Corinthians 3 verse 18 says. This is the process that's going on in your life, regardless of what type of trials you're meeting along the way. Paul says, and we all, 2 Corinthians 3 18, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed in the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. This is true for you if you are a believer in Jesus and you've trusted in his name and you've been born again. This is true of you regardless of whether or not you feel like it. You are, not might be, being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. And part of what God may be doing in your life, we've been going through this in the Wednesday mornings with, with men. We've been doing a theology hour, and we've been looking at a historic confession of the faith, the London Baptist Confession of Faith, written in the 1600s by English Puritans in London. And one of the truths in there is about our sanctification and about, our just, about what God does. And it says in God's providence that sometimes... This is a really encouraging sentence, and I'm just kind of summarizing here. That sometimes God allows his children, he in a sense kind of withdraws his direct providence. He withdraws himself from his children for a while and lets them kind of flounder about to produce in them a humility and a greater awareness of their dependence on him. So right now, you may be thinking, I think I'm a believer, but I'm not, I don't see myself being transformed. Let that, put that under the providence and sovereignty of God. Let that be the test. Let that knowledge produce in you a desire right now. Pray. Stop what you're doing. Get off Instagram and pray to God right now. Conform me. Produce in me more hunger for you. Lord, do this in me. The, these are monumental things that are at stake in our lives here in James 1. Conform me, transform me from one degree of glory to another and make me more like Jesus lest I die. James is concerned with getting us fit for heaven. The Bible does not ultimately work if it's only about functionality of how to live this life. That's why much, and I don't mean to be the cranky guy, but that's why much, I, I do feel this kind of need to equip people because we have so many transit people that come through Crosspoint, especially military people, that are here for a little while and then they go have to find other churches. And I, and I want to be optimistic. Like, I think I'm, I want to be optimistic about, the, I mean, Jesus says in Matthew 16 that he's building his church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. I know that's true. But I also read the New Testament that talks about weak and even false converts. And I think that there are many pockets of American church culture that have wrongly boiled the Christian life down to techniques and tips on how to live this life better. And I, I feel this burden to equip us as a congregation not because you hear that type of pragmatic teaching over and over and over again, and it will sort of program you subconsciously to see the Bible as a kind of tip book for better living. Now, will the Bible call us to better living? Yes. But that's not the ultimate point of the Bible. It's to cause us to despair of ourselves, not so that we would make these 80 years more smooth, but that we would cling to God so that we would be able to live with him forever through faith in Jesus. And so many churches just run through cycles of messages on you know, marriage and anger and dealing with all these things, which are good. We're going to get into that in James. But there's a way of reading and teaching the Bible that reduces it down to mere principles. And I don't want us to read the Bible that way. I don't think that's good. Principles flow out of the gospel, 
But that's not the heart of the message of the Bible. The purpose of this doctrine, the purpose of these trials is to make us more like Jesus, to fit us for heaven. Which then gets us to this third and final summary statement. Because of that, in a sense we're going in reverse order of this text. So he's, he's, he's validating his children through trials. The purpose of these trials is to make us more like Jesus. So therefore, because of that, we can get back to what James says. We can count it all joy. So therefore, we can arm ourselves with settled contentment, with joy. Not a kind of happy, fake smile that oftentimes Christian culture pressure puts on us, but a settled contentment. This is what Peter says in 1 Peter 1. Let me read it. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Listen to verse 6 now. In this you rejoice. In other words, in this you can have a settled contentment. Though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Friends, verse 7 is telling us, though your life may be really, really difficult here on this earth, It's preparing you, not for this day, but for that day. Though you have not seen him, verse 8, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy. Settled contentment that is inexpressible and filled with glory. Obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. So, God validates his children through trials. These trials are meant to make us more like Jesus. And for those reasons, we can arm ourselves with joy, with settled contentment. But where's the gospel in all this? All of what James says here and in the rest of the letter is only possible because of what the gospel tells us and how any of this is even possible. John the Baptist says, when he's preaching about Jesus' ministry in the beginning of Matthew, he says, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. In other words, you cannot read James and resolve to try and live better apart from the grace of the gospel. This fruit that James calls us to is a result of the work of repentance that God must do in our lives first. Listen to what Paul says in his letters. He says in Galatians 2, verse 20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live, I live in, the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So what is Paul saying here and how do we meld it together with what James is saying? Is James is calling us to a kind of authentic, proved, verified, fruit-bearing Christian life. This is what the Christian life looks like, James is saying. And the only way we can live that Christian life is if we first have received the grace that fuels this fruit. That we would believe that there's nothing I can do, nothing I can bring in my hands to merit myself to God. No no amount of good-mindedness towards the trials that I face. No amount of intelligence, no amount of grit that I can have in the trials that I face will commend me to God. But all of that is a result, is a fruit of the grace that God gives me in the gospel by making me realize that I am dead in my sins before I come to Christ, that he makes me alive, that he takes the punishment for my sins that should have been mine, and he puts it on his son Jesus on the cross, that Jesus bears the wrath of God the Father, and removes it for those who trust in Him, rises again victoriously over sin, death, and the grave, and now commands us. And when He he commands us, when the gospel hits our hearts, it doesn't improve us. It brings our dead hearts back to life, and it makes us now able to not trust in ourselves, 
but to trust in him, to put our faith in him. That's what salvation is. That's how it's received. Not by anything that we do, but what by Jesus has done. And now, because we have a new heart, we are enabled to live in this way. And we can pursue joy and steadfastness and a kind of Christian maturity that lacks nothing. Oh, that this would be true in my life and yours. Christian, let's remember the gospel and let's arm ourselves with this type of maturity. Friend that's here that maybe is not trusting in Christ and you realize it, James is not calling you to a kind of grittiness, a kind of self-sufficiency, a kind of do better, Tommy or Jane, pull yourself up by your bootstraps type of spirituality. That's not what James is saying. James is building on the truth of the gospel of grace where God gives you what he requires and he brings you back to spiritual life and enables you to live in this way with other Christians for his glory and your joy. So now you, if you know yourself not to be a believer, don't leave this room thinking that you've heard some helpful principles on how to deal with tough times. Know that your only hope is to despair of yourself and that you must trust in Christ who withstood the greatest trial, the wrath of God, and consumed it and ex 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 extinguished it for you on the cross and rose again in victory and now calls you to trust in him and not yourself. Let's pray. Lord, take these words from James and bring about fruit in our lives with him. I know that in this room there are uh, brothers and sisters whose hands are trembling and shaking under the weight of things that they're facing. And give, this, give them this mindset. Arm them with a settled contentment a perspective, an eternal perspective, and produce in them and all of us a, a Christ-likeness, a rootedness, a gravitas. Lord, all of us need that. And for my friends that are in this room that came in not knowing Jesus, and by your kindness, you've, you've actually made them aware of that, Lord, I pray that they would look away from themselves, that, they would, that this text would not cause them to look within on how they can live better, but that it would finally cause them to look outside of themselves where only life can be found, which is in Christ, in his life, in his death, in his resurrection, that they must turn from their sin and put their hope in Jesus. Lord, do that, work that in them. Save them. And then knit them, knit them together with the body of Christ so that they can live this way that James calls us to live. Lord, do this all, I pray, for your glory and our good. Make us more like Jesus. And settle some things in our hearts as we sing and respond to you. In Jesus' name, amen.